This is episode 124 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lisa Johnson. She is back for a part two of our PDPM, Where Are We Now? Uh, Lisa Johnson received her master's degree in communication science and disorders from the University of Minnesota Duluth. She's an SLP clinical mentor and rehab program development specialist with Benedictine. Ms. Johnson holds ASHA Certification of Clinical Competence, is a member of ASHA SIG-13, a member of the Twin Cities Speech-Language Pathology Organization, and has over 10 years of experience as an SLP. She's a certified dementia-capable care trainer, TIPA Snow Dementia Educator, and Alzheimer's Outreach Mentor. Her clinical focus includes work with hospitals, subacute care facilities, transitional care facilities, rehab and skilled nursing facilities, home health and outpatient clinics focusing on interdisciplinary program development, CMS, and insurance regulations across care settings, patient and clinician education and program development. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Lisa. Hello. How are you doing, Teresa? I'm good. I am so glad you came back for another episode. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here again. Yes. I've done a few episodes lately on all this regulatory administrative stuff, and it's not always the most interesting to everyone, (laughs) but... But it pays the bills. We have to, <laughs> yes, it pays the bills and we have to talk about it. And you have a way of talking about it in a way that we understand it. So I'm happy you're here. Happy to be here. Yes. Awesome. All right. So um, what are we going to cover today? So talking about PDPM, really where we are now. I know last time we talked, PDPM had just started. So it was really, everyone was new to it. All these rumors were flying around and we've had a little bit of chance to get used to PDPM, had our organizations react to it, I guess. But we're, I think we're still in a pretty, uh, a pretty important place for speech pathologists to really learn and really know what they should be doing, how they should be doing it, and really just have that concrete background to stand on, especially in those organizations that maybe aren't playing on the side of the rules, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So where should we start? Well, why don't we just start with the basics, kind of do a recap on PDPM itself and then the SLP components specifically, and then we can kind of dive into other stuff from there. Sounds good. All righty. So as most of you guys know, PDPM started October 1st of 2019. It was implemented really in a budget neutral manner. So essentially reimbursement from Medicare has, ideally it's unchanged under PDPM relative to like previous payment systems. And when PDPM was really put into place, there was an expectation that workforce reductions weren't going to happen. There wouldn't be a significant reduction in reimbursement, wouldn't be reduction in treatment. Really, it was just a change in how we code, how we document, and how the numbers get submitted. So With that in mind, there's really five components that make up PDPM. So before we were on our RUGS utilization, and that was really minutes-driven, therapy-driven. 
And now we're utilizing a five-part case mix component to give you a total reimbursement. So there's PT component, OT component, speech component, nursing, non-therapy auxiliary, and then a non-case mix component. Each of those components, depending on what their calculations are, what their documentation is, gives you a number, and then all of those numbers together give you your total reimbursement or your case mix category that your patient falls under. With that, speech is combined with um, their clinical category, uh, cognitive function, the presence of an SLP-related comorbidity, and then the presence of swallowing disorder or mechanically altered diet. So those things all put together give you your speech case mix. And I think that in itself can get really confusing because there are five components just within speech that give you a case mix category. And a lot of focus has just been on that comorbidity category. So a lot of those I codes, which I know has led to a lot of confusion for speech pathologists, MDS coordinators, nurse managers, whoever does the coding and billing in your organization. But really it's, it's breaking down all those categories to see what is the reimbursement you're going to get. Now, whether you provide speech therapy services or not, if you fall into a speech category, you still get payment for that category. So I, I think the I've heard some, some individuals worry about having to see somebody or not having to see somebody because we're getting paid for it. But you get paid for speech, you get paid for PT, OT, nursing, non-therapy, non-case mix, irregardless of who the patient is. It's just going to depend on how much you get paid. All right. I think that kind of recaps it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Where do we want to go? Maybe we just start with coding, kind of that comorbidity category. Sounds good. Maybe break down those. Yeah, sounds good. Kind of those confusions. Okay. Okay. All right. So coding confusions. Yes. So under the speech classification for reimbursement, one of the components that qualifies for reimbursement under speech is a speech comorbidity. So that has to be represented by one of the ICD-10 codes that falls under essentially the I code series. On the CMS website, they have a graph and a link to all of the ICD-10 codes that qualify specifically for the speech comorbidity. Stuff like phasia, praxia, CVA, TIA, dysphagia, oral cancers, traumatic brain injuries, speech and language deficits, tracheostomy, ventilator, respirator, stuff like that. I think I forgot one. ALS. So by having this diagnosis, the patient would get put into an SLP comorbidity. So they'd have essentially a check mark on being able to be reimbursed for this. A lot of the confusion comes, I think, when we have individuals being told that they have to have an I-code to be seen by speech, and that's just not the case. Having an I-code as your medical diagnosis would put you in a higher category, but if they don't have that diagnosis, it doesn't mean we can't see them, nor does it mean we should put one of those I-codes just to qualify them. Probably the one that I see the most confusion on is really the I-code series for dysphagia. So that's like the dysphagia following CVA. So it's like the I-69 series, essentially. And then the confusion with, do I use the R-code for dysphagia? Can I use it? Do I have to use both? In that specific scenario, if someone did have a CVA and they did have dysphagia, 
you would and you'd want to utilize both the I, so the I-69, and your R code. So your I-69 is telling you your medical diagnosis. Your R code is telling you the type or the phase of dysphagia. So you'd want to have both represented in order to appropriately document and identify your patient. So I think that's probably the biggest confusion that happens with the I codes and that SLP comorbidity. So they don't have to fall into the SLP comorbidity to treat. If they do, it gives you higher reimbursement. But if they don't have those diagnoses, don't document them. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. Just don't document them if they don't have it. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like a concept. Yeah. Okay. All right. What What other confusions do we have? I think kind of going along with that, you know, the other classification for speech is the presence of swallowing disorder. So this area is really confusing because it actually comes out of the section K of the MDS. Now, depending on who your community is, might depend on who fills out the section K. But with those questions, you might have somebody who has a dysphagia diagnosis. It's not an I-code dysphagia. So maybe it's just oral phase due to whatever medical condition is impacting that. But if you don't have somebody documenting loss of liquids and solids, holding food in their mouth, residual food after meals, coughing or choking during meals or during swallowing of medications, or there's no documentation of complaints of difficulty or pain when swallowing, then you don't actually get that classification under the Section K. So it's really, really important that as SLPs, we're communicating that part of our information. So if we have an evaluation on somebody because there was a complaint of difficulty with medications, if maybe we're doing a screen in the dining room and we see that somebody's pocketing their food or they're having loss from the oral cavity, we want to make sure that it becomes part of the medical record because then it's reflected in the section K. So that's where that really good interdisciplinary collaboration comes. I know in a lot of our communities, our nursing, CNAs, and then our registered dietitians fill out most of Section K, and then they ask for speech pathology input. So it's a two-way street back and forth for that part. A lot of times what we'll see is something will be documented on Section K, so maybe difficulty swallowing medications. I think that's one that comes up quite a bit. That's the one that's checked. But there's no speech therapy in there. And it might be that It was a one-time report, one-time documented, and maybe speech isn't indicated. But really wanting to make sure that we have that clearly documented because now you're getting reimbursement under that category. So I I think that's important for so many people to know, you know, because I think a lot of SLPs are kind of sitting back and watching this stuff passively happen. And I think Section K is really where they can kind of speak up and in-service the other professions, like you said, interdisciplinary is so important here. And I think this is such a good place, like I said, for SLPs to speak up, do in-services and say, you know, hey guys, these are all the things you should be looking for. This is what triggers this for SLP. So yeah, definitely. And really it's, it's really understanding how is section K answered and it's you code all of those areas, even if the symptom only occurred once. So it may be that you had an evening shift nurse or evening shift CNA say, hey, the resident coughed when I gave them their med pass. And that's what gets them the qualification. But you want to do your due diligence and have that conversation. One of the caveats to that section K under the presence of a swallowing disorder is 
if a swallowing problem and the interventions have already successfully treated the patient and treated the problem, then you don't code it as a swallowing disorder. So this might come into play when you have maybe your frequent flyers, your people who keep bouncing back and forth in your rehospitalization. You might see them not come up on a section K because you've already successfully treated them and they no longer have that active problem. So essentially therapy's been successful for them. Yeah, tricky. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep, really tricky. So the other component of the section K is the mechanically altered diet. And when you throw IDSI on top of it, I think it gets really, really confusing, especially because I know we have had some state organizations come out and say, hey, we're moving closer to IDSI. Are you getting your stuff in line? And you have a lot of residents who are now falling into that soft diet, or we see a lot of orders that come across a soft diet and really looking at, is that truly a mechanically altered diet? Is there truly on the flip side, a swallowing disorder? Or is it something where, you know, they lost their dentures and they haven't gotten them back yet in between the transition? So really being part of that interdisciplinary collaboration conversation for that. And even if it's having an eval to rule out the necessity of a mechanically altered diet due to dysphagia. So I think that's that's key as well. Yeah. All right. Well, and do we have any more coding confusions here? I'm trying to think. Brooke had sent me a list of some of the coding concerns. Oh, I guess the other kind of coding question that comes up is the cognitive function. You know, if they don't have a cognitive disorder or an ICD-10 code, a medical diagnosis that really falls into one of those cognitive categories, can we still treat them for cognition? Or if they score really well on the BIMS, and most of us who have been in the skilled nursing environment have seen the BIMS, have maybe administered the BIMS ourselves, we know it has its place, but it's not really a deep dive into cognitive function, and especially the functional part of cognition. I know I have residents, I walk into the room, and I look a lot like one of our social workers who administers the BIMS, and he starts telling me bed blue sock ah. and then asks me to go away. Like yeah, yeah. he's just been, he's been around so long. He knows the answer. So it's not a true reflection of his cognitive ability. So really, you know, having that conversation, I think with your team, especially if you're seeing in nursing reports and documentation, or you're hearing from nursing that there's challenges in getting the patient either to participate, to follow directions, to attend my ears always pick up when somebody says, oh, the patient's non-compliant with this. Like, okay, well, let's dive into that. There might be a cognitive component to that non-compliance, even though the BIMS reflect something different. But there's nothing that says we can't treat for cognition just because they don't have that cognitive function portion represented on the BIMS. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's the big stuff in coding. Okay. Awesome. Have you heard anything else? I have not. I think that about covers it. Okay. All right. What's next? Let's talk about group. Yay, group. <laughs> group. Let's throw everybody, everybody in a group together, it. yes. Yes, yes. So group's one of those really, I think it's a really interesting concept. Personally, I love doing group therapy when it's clinically appropriate. I think it has such amazing value for social communication and really getting patients to experience some of their functional goals within a different setting. Because it's not like they leave our TCUs, our skilled nursing facilities, and never encounter people. We want to kind of replicate that. 
But with that, we also need to make sure we're following the accurate guidelines and doing it appropriate. So one of the areas that I think makes it the most challenging is a lot of times we have leads and directors who are physical therapy, occupational therapy. So their rules and their guidelines, so what their LCD says is different than speech. So in some states, in some areas, you cannot provide group therapy for a patient who is getting dysphagia treatment. It's just flat across the board. It cannot be provided. We do not do it. You will not get reimbursed for it. You can't put it under the group code because it even says in the LCD, like, this is not for dysphagia. So really, I can't emphasize enough, like, find your LCD and pull that section out because it's going to give you leverage, especially if you have a director or you have an organization that's telling you you have to group this percentage of people or this many people or provide this many groups because it might just not even be legal to do. Yeah. I mean, if you have a caseload that's 80% dysphagia, there's no way you can provide 25% group. It's just not possible. The math doesn't work. Thank you for saying that because I think so many people are like, I've been told I have to group with everyone. It's like, first of all, see if it's even legal in your area. Yes. Yeah. And I think the blanket statement of, you know, because we can do 25% group and concurrent doesn't mean we should do 25% group and concurrent. You know, CMS has been very, very straightforward in saying that you have to justify and document why a patient will benefit from group. It can't be a convenience thing. It can't be a scheduling thing. It can't be because, you know, Susie CNA brought Betty down when it was supposed to be George. So we're going to throw Betty in our group. There has to be a clinical reason for a group, and it has to be beneficial for that individual to target their individual goals. And if you don't have that documented, you can get all of your payment taken back. So awesome! if you are doing groups, make sure you document why it benefits the patient. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think groups can be done incredibly well if they're planned, because it does take a lot of planning to do a group. You know, you have to have that, you have to schedule it, you have to know what you're going to do, you have to know the goals. And part of the regulations also state it has to be a planned group. It can't just be a random my four people, two people, six people showing up in front of me. So I'm going to group them. Um, There has to be a planned effort into it as well. The, The APTA actually has a great flow sheet. So the Physical Therapy Association on how to determine and decide if somebody's group appropriate. And it's really based on clinical rationale and functional goals. So even though, you know, we're talking speech pathology, I think it's a great resource to look at as well. If you've really never done groups, you're not really sure of how do I even make that clinical consideration and determination. Awesome. Do we have that linked for the show notes, Lisa? I believe I did. Awesome. Yep. Here it is. Okay. Yep. We'll make sure that's linked in the show notes for you guys. Awesome. Thank you. It's amazing what we can learn from our interdisciplinary peers. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. What else came up? Anything else about group? Yeah. I think, I think that kind of, okay. that kind of covers. Let's talk about concurrent. Cause I think this is like where everyone just gets so confused. Yes. And I think sometimes people interchange concurrent and group, especially with the new, you know, group used to be four people. So it was easy. We did four people for group, two for concurrent, but with the switch for part A of group being two to six residents, I think that's really kind of blended the lines and really made it a little bit more confusing. So concurrent therapies defined as the treatment of two residents at the same time 
when the residents are not performing the same or similar activities versus group where they are performing same or similar activities. One of the big differences with concurrent, and I don't think it affects speech as much, but with concurrent, both individuals being treated have to be in line of sight, whereas with group, they have to be directly supervised. So a little bit different definition as far as who is being treated. And then there's also the the payer source considerations with that. So most payers for group, it doesn't really matter who the payer source is, but with concurrent, there's a lot more caveats with it as in regards of who can be billed together in concurrent. I think what I struggle with with concurrent is, like you said, they just have to be in line of sight. And I just really wonder, like, yeah, what kind of skilled therapy are we doing when they're just in line of sight? You know, like I understand for, you know, like, yeah, like PT and OT, they can put them on the treadmill or they put them on the arm bike and that's understandable, but we don't really have any fancy machines that we can passively hook our patients up to. And- right, right. So I think with kind of with concurrent, it's, it's really tricky, especially the definition of same or similar activities, like they're not performing them, but that doesn't mean they're not working on the same goal. So you might have a patient whose goal is attention. So you're doing an attention goal. That's your target for function. But the activities that you're doing for both individuals might be completely different. So kind of kind of thinking of it that way, what is your functional goal versus what activity am I doing to target that goal? Gotcha. But yeah, I think it can be really challenging. And most of the time, if I'm planning for group, I really have to sit down and think to myself, am I doing group or am I doing concurrent? Am I doing the same activity or am I doing the same functional goal? So asking that question can help as well. Awesome. I love that. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else for concurrent? So I guess I think like, especially if you have the your company telling you like you have to do 25% or you're just being scheduled for it, really ask those questions. You know, make sure you have the right payer source. Make sure that... If you have somebody who is dysphagia only, um, you know, that's your only evaluation, that's your only treatment, that whoever is assisting with your scheduling, whoever is telling you you have to do something a certain way, that they really know, I can't build this. Like, I just can't do it and I won't do it. And know that you have a lot of um, regulatory backing on that, as well as the fact that most reimbursement companies will just shoot it back at you once the bills go through. And I, and I think that's, I, I th- what am I trying to say? It's almost like a blessing and a curse, I think, for us to not be involved in those denials, <laughs> you know, because I think like we should just be focusing on the patient and delivering the best care, the best treatment, the best therapy, the best diagnostics we can. However, it is very beneficial for us to know if what we're doing is being kicked back, the facility's not getting reimbursed. Yep. You know, I, I, like I said, I have, I have mixed feelings about how involved we should be with that, but I do absolutely think we should know our own regulatory guidelines for our own MACs, our own LCDs. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. knowing if what I'm doing is going to get kicked back, cause the facility a lot of grief, cause the facility denials. And, and I think that's where we get a bad rap because it's like, well, we don't get reimbursed for speech therapy. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you do, but not if you're building the wrong code. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think this is something that, you know, if our buildings or our facilities are going to be transparent with us about 
the denials that they're getting. And I'm not saying they're not transparent. It's just sometimes it goes to a different office in a different city and doesn't always get relayed back to us. You know, it's like somebody in in corporate compliance handles it and it doesn't always get, you know, down to the, to the actual therapist. So I think that's why it's so important for us to do our own due diligence and know, yes, this code is, is okay in my area. Yes. Group is okay in my area. Yes. This is what concurrent means. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, where, where that responsibility lies really depending on where you work, I guess, like in-house versus contract. If it's a large organization, small organization, there's so much variability across the board that really knowing that information, especially when you have, and this, this actually blew my mind when I learned about it is a lot of the electronic medical records, the electronic software that we use for therapy is now using advanced business intelligence. So analytics to determine a revenue source. So organizations have the option of turning on certain alerts, like flagging if dysphagia is a diagnosis and group is built. So you can go into some of the softwares and put that as an alert where it's it always flags at the therapist level, so you can't even start documenting or treating, but it's an option. So really interesting to see, you know, we did a lot of looking at business intelligence and looking at what the software had, what it was going to offer, especially with the switch to PDPM. And I'm just really glad I worked for an organization that turned off most of the things that were going to be pushed through from a software side of things. So knowing, even just knowing that, that just the software that you use to document might be pushing things through or might not have alerts come up when it could. I think that's crucial too, because then, you know, if you're typing it, if you're billing it, it's your license. And we real I think we really need to remember that, that it's our license. And when push com- comes to shove, I hate to say this, but it does not matter who you work for. If you're not billing ethically and something comes down the pipe and you have an audit, maybe you're getting a civil suit, administrative long- wrongdoing suit, they're going to cut your ties. Doesn't matter if you've been there 30 years, you're still low man on the totem pole, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which sucks. I was just about to say, I'm so glad you said that. Which I'm not glad you said that. I'm not glad we're talking about this. But the reality is I, I, I a few conversations have come up lately about why you should have professional liability insurance. And I know this was not what you were talking about at all. This was not what we were planning to talk about at all. But that's one thing that always comes up is people are like, well, my company says that they have me on their professional liability and insurance. And it's like, they only have you on their professional liability insurance if it's beneficial to them. If, if something happens, if push comes to shove, they'll cut you loose so fast. And, and I think that's why it's so important for all of us to have our own professional liability and not rely on the facilities. It's not, I think it's like 70 bucks a year. Like it's stupid cheap for what could potentially happen. So yeah. And that's my little soapbox issue. For oh today. my gosh. No, I, I could, I could hop on that soapbox for days. Okay. Like it's, it's unreal how many individuals within therapy, PT, OT, SLP, they rely on the company they're with to provide essentially a net and a protection for what they've worked their whole lives for. And like you said, if something goes wrong, they're going to cut you loose. They put you on administrative leave and they think about things while they do the paperwork and you no longer have coverage. And I think that's just scary 
Yeah, very much so. For me, I think what's scarier is just going about your daily business and ignoring all of those red flags. So that that's so that's so interesting, Lisa. What you said about the like different software intelligence and things like that, and like, again, talking about a blessing and a curse. I think it's it's good if they have built in. You know, you can't even build this code because it's not. It won't get reimbursed here. But I think the other hand is is some of these facilities, some of these companies are not allowing certain codes because they aren't reimbursed high or they aren't reimbursed, but they are allowed or, you know, there's different stipulations for different codes. And I think that's where it gets shady that we should be able to have some sort of autonomy with, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And it's, it goes back to what you said about knowing your licensure, knowing your practice, knowing the rules and regulations you know, we might not be the one submitting the UBO4, but we need to know what goes on it. We need to know what codes are going in there. We need to know that our documentation reflects our skilled ability and our skilled treatment and is coded to the most clinically appropriate manner. I know I saw on a couple different Facebook posts, a couple different groups that, you know, people were being told by MDS coordinators or being told by billing that they had to add a certain code in after the fact. Like, well, they didn't just magically develop that medical diagnosis. If it was one thing where maybe you really don't have a great process of getting medical records over and you found out this information and it's, you have that stream of documentation, then okay, maybe I could see having that conversation. But if it's just, hey, I realize that this puts us in a higher category. And I know you do that speech thing with the swallowing. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Um, so why don't we code it this way? You know, it comes down to, you know, we have the ability to code and diagnose. We're diagnosing the phase of the dysphagia. That is our bread and butter. We should not be told otherwise. If somebody comes in with a CVA and they don't have a dysphagia, you know, you've done your evaluation, you've gone through, you've ruled it out. We shouldn't be having that specific I-69 code with the, the modifiers on it. You know, we really want to have our codes reflect the most accurate and the most, like, to the seventh to ninth code as possible. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, I see people like, they were told I couldn't build this code or couldn't fill that. Like, well, they're not the experts in it. Yeah, they didn't evaluate them, so. <laughs> All right. Anything else as far as that? Not coding, I don't think, no. What about scheduling? Scheduling. <laughs> I I want to cry when I hear about scheduling for some people out there. You know, I've talked to some patients. I do work in home care and I've talked to some of my residents. They're like, well, I only got 15 minutes a day for speech or I only got 30 minutes for PT when I used to, you know, the last time I was at that nursing home, I got an hour and a half for whatever it was. As a clinician, if you are evaluating your resident, you are determining the number of treatment minutes. It is your clinical determination and your clinical expertise that determines the number of minutes. Only you know how many minutes it'll take to meet that patient's goal, how many days a week, and what your goals look like. Unfortunately, what we have happening, and especially, I hate to say it, is a lot of the companies that do use the electronic medical record software, they use that business analytics intelligence. And Basically, it's used to predict, manage costs, and customize protocols 
for a revenue base. So if you had an organization that had, you know, 79% ultra high, they've taken what that revenue reimbursement was and put it into an algorithm for your case mix indicator. So whatever your grouping is under PDPM to maximize that company's revenue and their reimbursement. So, and it's, I hate, I'm like, it sucks, especially when therapists don't know that's why. A lot of times I hear, well, I asked my rehab manager or our lead for more minutes, but they keep telling me that it's coming, the computer's giving me 15. And it, it's not based on any clinical determination, any skill set. It is literally an algorithm in the software that's saying, Whoever owns this contract wants this percentage of reimbursement based off of what the case mix indicators are. And it's only going to allow this number of minutes to meet that threshold. And I I don't think a lot of directors and leads even understand that or even know about it. They just plug in the information that shoots out the numbers. Uh, yeah, that I just that's just horrible. Yeah. I feel like this is the episode of blessings and curses because yes, it, it's obviously the the software is wonderful and has been extremely beneficial for lots of aspects. This is not one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And it's but what I think what the biggest thing is for me is when your companies when PDPM shifted. If you're either an in house or your contract company, there's contract negotiations that happen anytime there's a change in reimbursement structure. So essentially, you know, your rehab team, whether that's, you know, at the in-house level or way up top in some building, who knows where, come to the table and say, you know, this is the percentage of revenue we want based on your previous year's numbers. And then they meet with their software company and say, okay, this is what we've negotiated. Now here's much we want as well. So there's all these negotiations happening in the background and the companies have the option of having these, essentially these pre-entered percentages and revenue bases entered into the systems instead of really allowing the therapist to say, I indicate that Betty needs 45 minutes of this treatment this many days a week for this many weeks. And that's how we're going to meet our goals. So It'll be really interesting to see, especially, you know, as we're getting more data, as we're seeing more shift towards really outcome-driven treatment, outcome-driven evaluations, outcome-driven plan of cares, what that looks like for those software companies, and in turn, what that looks like for treating clinicians. Because it is really that trickle effect. If you sucked at getting outcomes before, it's going to suck for you now because you're getting less. Essentially, if if you couldn't prove why you were beneficial and have like amazing outcomes, great length of stay, and really low rehospitalization and return to provider rates, then chances are you are probably in one of those organizations that's getting eight to 15 minutes for speech. Yeah. It's it's funny because I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not funny. A really poor choice of words today, but <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like that's what so many people are saying. Like, if you work for a really good ethical facility before, those companies are going to continue to be profitable. If you worked for a really crappy, unethical company before, it's just going to continue to get worse. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate yeah. because you know that's that's not what we want to be going on, but that's the reality of the situation. So, yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but I and I think 
as a profession, we just need to understand what's going on in the background, where those decisions are coming from. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's yep. not our rehab director a lot of the times. A lot of the times they've just been told, go with what the computer said. I was talking to somebody the other day and, and she was so mad at her, at her DOR and her DOR was a PT. And, you know, finally I just said, do you really think that the PT understands how that the SLP, how speech therapy is built? Do you think that he really does have a solid understanding of this or is he just going by what he's being told from corporate? And she got back to me a few days later and she's like, you know what? You're so right. I, I asked him for a meeting and we sat down and she said, no, he said, I have no idea how SLP works. I have no idea why you guys justify these things, why you want these services, why you want this many minutes for this code, why you want yeah. this for this. And he's like, I'm honestly just telling you what corporate is suggesting. So she thought that he was just being crappy. He totally has no clue what she, why she's trying to ask for these things. So it ended up being a super productive meeting between the two of them and getting on the same page and you know, why she's asking for more and, you know, he's getting the pushback from corporate for these specific things. So I think, you know, sometimes that we've got to have these come to Jesus. Oh yeah. Yeah. And being able to come to those meetings prepared and not just say, well, why aren't you giving me what I asked for? Like really having that open and professional conversation of this is why I need these things. This is how it's going to benefit my patient. Can you explain to me where you're getting these numbers that you're giving me? Where is your direction coming from and trying to find that middle ground? Because if you can't find the middle ground, like the people that are going to lose out are our patients. Right. Because therapists come and go, but our patients are really what we're there for. Yeah. All right. What's next, Lisa? Well, I think this, this goes nicely into our next point about joint statements. Oh, yes. Yes. So AOTA, APTA, and ASHA have actually put out a couple joint statements recently, um, which is really, you know, it doesn't happen that often. And they put them out also with the National Association for the Support of Long-Term Care. So if you're an ASHA member, you probably received the email blast with it. They may have asked you to complete a survey as well, just reflecting, you know, what's going on in your organization? What have you seen ethically compliance-wise? Are you feeling pressured as a clinician to do certain things? But really what they sent out was, for PDPM, they really send out information about compliance and ethical treatment and compliance reporting. And I had emailed ASHA because, you know, I had a question for them, you know, really of, okay, it's great that you sent us this information that you told us who we can contact, but what do we do in the meantime? Because I know there's that fear out there of, you know, okay, I know I shouldn't build this way. I know that this is not an ethical practice, but our code of ethics also say we can't abandon our patients. So really between a rock and a hard place of what do we do as clinicians, you know, and we're legally bound to, to these ethics and these compliance codes. And I was hoping I'd have an answer, but I haven't gotten an answer back yet. So I actually reached out to a couple of the healthcare lawyers that, that I have my um, professional liability insurance through really just asking, you know, Hey, I'm hearing these things, you know, And I wanted to know because we have a lot of on-call associates who work for other organizations. And if they're being told to bill or document unethically, that could have a direct impact on our organization and what that looks like. So really looking at how do we move forward knowing that there's this information. And what they had said was not only is it our responsibility to know the regulations, but know who to communicate with and 
how to document that communication. So a lot of companies, you know, we have our personal email or your company email. You know, there's obviously electronic medical record, which is HIPAA issues up the wazoo. But what they had said was, you know, if you're receiving internal documents, things that are telling you to bill a certain way or to code a certain way, save those, print them out, have a secure flash drive with a code and just start saving stuff on there. Meet with your legal consultant and also make sure you've taken the steps of reporting. And I don't mean like I just complained to my rehab director. I mean, actually taking the steps of filing an anonymous complaint, going to your compliance coordinator, whether that's at your facility level, at your corporate level, at your state level, and also documenting those conversations. And then as much as you can and you're able to, you know, treat ethically, treat and document the way we're supposed to. Because honestly, the worst thing that could happen is you get fired. And if you get fired, for doing the ethical thing, you really, nobody has a case against you. But if you get fired because you're falling in line, well, you don't have a foot to stand on. Like you did what they told you and then you complained. So it's, it's really hard, especially in, you know, I'm not trying to be like Susie Sunshine, like document and get fired. (laughs) Like that, that is the reality of what happens when you have organizations who are trying to cut corners and who are trying to get the best reimbursement possible and are really using the frontline therapist to do it. So if you're, one of the things that, that the, the legal department did say, which I thought was really, really interesting is if you're not in-house, so if you work for like a contract company or you're under a contractual agreement in an organization, maybe you're on call or whatever, under the code of federal regulations and requirements for long-term care facilities, the skilled nursing facility in itself is required to take reasonable steps to achieve compliance under program policies and procedures. So what this means is if you work for a contract therapy company or you're contracted in, your reporting of compliance concerns might not be within your organization. It might be going to the administrator going to the DON, going to the CEO of that nursing company, because they have a legal and ethical responsibility to ensure that the individuals that are providing services under their contract aren't avoiding anything and that they're following the compliance and the policies that are set forth for them. So there are different options. I think a lot of times we, we complain to our coworkers, we complain to our DON, and we just don't do anything from there. But you know, if it's that thing where you are you're leaving and crying in the car, I guess. That's, what is that? That's the new, the new thing, crying in your yeah, car. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. So yeah. if you're leaving and you know, you're still thinking about it when you get home, take the steps. Like don't just go complain to your DOR, like actually take the steps and follow up and know why you feel icky. Like what are the things that aren't going the way it's supposed to? Is it just because you're not getting your way or are there really ethical and legal considerations happening? Awesome. I think that was stated very well, Lisa. <laughs> it's, it's a hard, I think it's, it's hard. It's hard for therapists because everybody needs a job. Yeah. But right. can you sleep at night and will you have that job if it moves up the chain? I mean, I guess that, you know, that kind of lends to the, the elephant in the room about, you know, I mean, where, where do you think we go from here? Like, as a profession, because it just seems like so many, doesn't seem like there was so many companies that laid off so many therapists. And yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's kind of, 
it really depends on our organizations. So like ASHA, APTA, AOTA, like what stance are they going to take? Obviously they've come out and said like, we need to be compliant. They're not in agreement with what these bigger companies are doing, but there hasn't been any really backlash from that, I guess. And then looking at, are we following in line with that documentation? Are we just blindly doing what these organizations are telling us? Or are we starting to make some noise? Are we starting to go up the chain? Are we, you know, you can do confidential reporting. You can do anonymous reporting. I know I saw a huge report that came out like two weeks ago and it was essentially a bunch of therapists who had been let go and they were all naming the organizations that they worked for. I'm not saying go out and like buy a billboard and shame your organization because that's not the way to do it. You know, you want to follow the proper steps in being compliant, but also looking at really what is this doing to our patients, to our organization? Are we getting the same outcomes that we got before PDPM? Are we having a good length of stay for our residents? Are we using evidence-based treatment to really treat and get to the core of what's going on with the people we, we see? I actually think, you know, and I, I think I said this when we first talked about PDPM is, I think PDPM is a great opportunity for therapy, especially for speech language pathologists. It's a way for us to show why we are so important to the patient caseload and why we're a vital part of the interdisciplinary team. But we need to be able to own that and we need to be able to not just arbitrarily throw treatments at people. You know, we need to have a good clinical swallow evaluation. We need to have those instrumentals that truly document the impairment the physiological deficits, like what is going on with our patients, and really be able to articulate why we need to see them. Not just, well, I always saw Betty for five times a week for 25 minutes when she had this diagnosis. Okay. That gives me nothing. I think, you know, we're moving towards a really patient positive place where things are driven by who the patient is, not by the number of minutes we see them. But we need to be able to continue to justify that with good treatment, good evidence-based assessments, and really be able to document our skill set. I think the kind of the, the crappy part of that is the therapists that suck at what they do are the ones who are not going to make noise. They're going to treat for 15 minutes because that's what they've always done. But if you start looking at, you know, one of the cool parts with the software companies is as we've made the shift, they have a lot more ability to do more analytic-driven data. So really drilling down to the individual therapist and seeing who's actually getting the outcomes, who's actually treating and getting the patient to a higher level of function, who has the least rehospitalization rates, and then who's also following that whole continuum of care from admitting to the hospital all the way to home health and the outpatient side of things. And as we start making these shifts, you know, we have PDPM, now PDGM, we're really going to see that whole continuum continue to grow and that really that database of outcomes that are connected to specific therapists. So, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> there is a lot of opportunity. We just need to really know our skills, know our discipline and really know how to document and justify it for ourselves and for our patients. I, I think I, I was reading something yesterday, you know, I, I don't know, some people think I just live in this bubble and I don't understand the real world. And I very much do understand the real world. <laughs> but I also, I, I choose to take a different outlook on things. I choose to not 
I, I hate the victim mentality. Yeah. I choose to take charge of what I can. I choose to control what I can control. And something, an interesting article I was reading yesterday was like, why do we think we're so selfish and we're, we're the only profession that thinks that, that we're doom and gloom right now? You know what I mean? <laughs> think of how doctors, think about how doctors feel about their reimbursements at this point, how, you know, nurses feel it, like every profession right now has their own shit. It's, it's not just us that's being ganged up on, you know, I mean, uh, sure. We did just have this, this huge thing happen that brought things to light a lot more. But if you look at every profession, every profession has their own crap to deal with. And what are you going to do to, you know, rise above it, take into control what you can control, can control. Um, where do you accept the responsibility for your shortcomings? And, and I think that's really what I, what I preach. And, and I think, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror sometimes and do the deep work about how we can be better therapists, how, yeah, how we can be better for our patients. Cause it's, you know, you hear people say, well, I'm leaving the field. I'm going to this profession. And it's like, so you're going to face the same crap there. You know, there, there's a whole new set of crap. You know, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Yeah. And, and I think it's sometimes easier to just run than it is to do the the hard work to get yourself up to speed and, and find out what your facility really is getting reimbursed for or how you really can get better outcomes for your patients or how you can really advocate for services. And I, that's really what I just like to, that's what I hope for SLPs everywhere. So. Oh yeah. And I do, it's, you know, I think everyone is so like, but what if I get fired? Okay. But what if you change lives? Like what if you make our profession a million times better than it is right now? Like what if you are that beacon of hope? What if you're that one SLP in rural North Dakota who everyone relies on now? Like there's so much that we can do. We just can't be afraid of having those conversations, you know, and we got to have our research. We got to have our evidence to back ourselves up. We can't fly blind. Awesome. Well, thanks, Lisa. I want to just drop the, drop the mic there. <laughs> Yes. I, I, this is a really expensive mic, so I won't do that, but yeah, don't yes. do that. Don't All right. do that. <laughs> no, we need that. This guy's, this guy's been really good to me. We've had him for a long time. So yeah. Yeah. No, right. no, no well, real mic so drop. Much, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Any, any final thoughts? You know, I, I guess for those SLPs out there who are feeling like they're drowning, who feel like there's no way to go reach out there are so many SLPs out there who work for organizations that are doing things ethically. And there's also SLPs out there who have been where you've been. You know, and I say this with as much empathy as I can have, like, I've been there. I've been in the organization that goes the shit route. And I'm better for it. I'm on the other side. And it can be done. You don't have to stay in that place. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I love coming on. Yes. <laughs> Yay. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.